wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into, said Sam. Baron now. He never thought he was going to get that Cimero from the Iron Crown, and yet he did. And that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Eärendil. And why, sir? I never thought of that before. We've got... Well, you've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? Quinia Questions in Quarantine, where my buddy Sam walks me through my first reading of the Silmarillion. And today, here we are at the final chapter of the tale that we know as the Silmarillion. Now, of course, that is a more complex narrative than the book will tell you, so there are additional uh, chapters. But what we know as the actual Silmarillion comes to a conclusion today with the voyage of Erendil and the War of Wrath. But first, let's kick it to Sam to give us a nice summary from last week's episode. Thanks, Raleigh, and I'm excited that we've climbed this mountain of the Silmarillion together. And you're right, what a Tolkien thing to make the end more complicated than it had to be. (laughs) (laughs) That this isn't the end of the Silmarillion, the published book that we're holding in our hands, but is the end of the tale of those objects, the jewels called the Silmarils. And though there are great stories ahead of us still, this really is the conclusion of the first age of Middle-earth, the end of the exile of the Noldor, and as we'll come to see, the end of Beleriand itself. Last time, we had of the fall of Gondolin, which capped off what I would say is a trilogy of chapters about elven kingdoms being destroyed. (laughs) We had the fall of Nargothrond, then the ruin of Doriath, and now we have the fall of Gondolin, which happened last time. Gondolin being the most beautiful city that the elves made in Middle-earth. Long story short, Morgoth figured out where it is, and he came and whomped it real bad. So, Gondolin's destroyed, but silver lining, and we do get these silver linings in all of these defeats. Some people escape from Gondolin. Most importantly, that is Tuor, this man who found Gondolin, only the third man ever to see Gondolin and his wife Idril, the elf and daughter of King Turgon of Gondolin, who was killed in Gondolin's destruction, and Idril and Tuor's son Eärendil, who is our protagonist of the chapter today. And Eärendil, notably, is only the second ever half-elf after Dior, the son of Baron and Luthien, who was previously killed. So, 
Arendil and his parents and a couple other elves escape Gondolin, but things are not looking good at this point for the elves. In fact, they're looking as bad as they ever have. Morgoth controls all of the nine tic-tac-toe squares of our battle board of Beleriand, this western part of Middle-earth. There are no elven kingdoms left. The survivors are basically just hanging out on the west coast trying to hold on, and Morgoth is just letting them be there because they're essentially a nomadic refugee community that doesn't have a lot going for them. So this is where we start our final chapter of the Silmarillion, as dark as it's ever been in terms of the prospects for the elves and humans in Middle-earth. Morgoth has won against the exile Noldor elves. And on that happy note, I'll throw it back to you, Raleigh, and we can start to see in your Raleigh recap if there's any hope of the good guys pulling out of this deep, deep hole that Morgoth has dug for them and they've dug for themselves over the last many chapters. Yes, well, thank you, Sam. But uh, just remember, it's always darkest before the dawn. In the Tolkien story, there's always a way out, and it usually does involve the eagles in some way, and they will play their <laughs> play their part today. Yes, indeed. And so uh, the chapter is split into basically our two phrases here, the Voyage of Erendil and the War of Wrath. So we'll be starting with uh, the Voyage of Erendil, and Erendil is our uh, main focus here. And so we got a little bit of a preview of this at the end of the last chapter. But Arindale marries Elwing, and they have two sons, Elrond and Elros. However, Arindale is not content to uh, just remain as a good, loving dad. And he takes to the seas because his parents, Tuor and Idril, had also done this. And now he's searching for them and hopes to be able to find the shores of Valinor. Since no man or even elf has been able to find Valinor since they closed off hundreds of years previously. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the Valar did that on purpose, right? They made the sea impassable as a sign to the exile Noldor, right? Like, you can't come here anymore. But Arendil is going to try and find them. And you're right, he is a bit of a deadbeat dad in that sense, I guess, because he leaves Elwing, his wife, and their children, Elrond and Elros, on the coast with the other refugee elves. And this is notably Elrond, the character we know and love from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, the wise master of Rivendell, the elf who has the council of Elrond that sets everybody on the quest for Mount Doom. So a big deal. And here he is in the last chapter. (laughs) Yeah, I, I definitely thought he was older than he really is. Yeah, it's interesting how, for instance, Galadriel, who we've known from much longer in this story because she was born on the western continent of Valinor and was part of this exiled group of elves, she's so much older than Elrond, for instance, right? A full age worth. A full age almost worth, exactly. But here we have Elrond at last and his brother Elros. And notably, Elrond and Elros have quite an interesting pair of parents, two of a kind, I would say. So remember that Erendil, as we've already said, is a half-elf, the son of the man Tuor, and Idril, the daughter of the king of Gondolin. So Erendil is a half-elf. Elwing, 
His wife, who escaped the ruin of Doriath with the Silmaril, is the daughter of Dior, who's the only other half-elf we've ever met. So Elwing is also a descendant from both the children of Iluvatar. She has the blood of men and the blood of elves in her veins, with a little sprinkling of demigod from Melian, our uh, far-sighted Maiar, in there as well. It's essentially like half-elf Arendil plus essentially a half-elf Elwing get together, their children, Elros and Elrond, also half-elves. So the ancestry only becomes more complex. And I promise you, Raleigh, that what's nice about this being the last chapter of the Silmarillion proper is we're kind of coming to the end of having to keep track of all of these genealogies. So it's at maximum complication right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the DNA test for them is uh, going to be a pretty weird one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, it does get more complicated when we get people like Aragorn and Arwen, who are related to all of these people. And then you have to go even farther into the genealogical chart. But in terms of Silmarillion level here we are at the peak, so I appreciate you bearing with me as we cover all this. <laughs> and uh, they all have the same name, basically, so there's uh, that uh, cherry on the top of the name confusions here. At least we're done with all the elves whose name starts with F, our Fingons and Fingolfins and Finways and Feanors and whatnot. We're now on the E squad. But anyway, Arendil leaves the other three in this E squad and goes off to sea, right? And he is Arendil the Mariner. He's in love with the sea. He has a beautiful ship. Basically, the story says he goes on a bunch of adventures that we're not going to know what those were. <laughs> yeah, he definitely seems to be the naval navigator. So as he's away on one of his voyages, Maithros has sent word to Elwing to take the Silmaril from her. So if you remember... Ever since Baron took the Silmaril from Morgoth, this has been the village Silmaril, basically. <laughs> many, many people have touched it, and it's now become sort of a family heirloom for Elwing. So it was passed down from Dior, from Melian, from Thingol, and then originally from Baron. This entire family has uh, become a part of the Silmaril, if you will. However, we still have this oath from the Sons of Feanor. And so when she refuses, we get our third and final kinslaying. And this one is described as the last and the cruelest. Many elves will die in this battle, including two of the sons who are still alive. So at this point, I guess there are about four sons left. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. And now two of them have now perished. So originally seven, I believe. And all of them through their greed for these silver elves have been killed off one by one by one. Yeah, absolutely right. And I said this was the darkest the elves have ever been when we started this chapter, and I've already been proven wrong because it gets worse right off the bat. The refugees on the coast are attacked by the remaining sons of Feanor, who, as we know, are driven by this terrible oath to reclaim the Silmarils, which were created by their father Feanor, at any cost from anybody if you hold the Silmaril, they're going to take it from you or they're going to kill you in the attempt. It's the most black and white oath possible, right? We have to get it and nothing will stop us. And you're right. There were seven of them. 
and by the end of this kinsling, there are only two left, and the five were all killed in these misguided attempts to get the Silmaril back from the other elves. <laughs> well, kind of got it coming, I guess. Um. Yes, but this last one is terrible. So remember, yeah, this is the third and final time ever that the elves as a group are going to kill other elves. The first time was the kinslaying in Valinor, where Feanor inspired the Noldor to bloodlust, and they killed the Teleri, the Ron Weasley elves, and took their ships to sail those ships back to Middle-earth. That set off all of this chaos, right? That was the first kinslaying. The second one was only a couple of chapters ago, and that was when the sons of Feanor attacked Doriath and killed Dior trying to get the Silmaril. Elwing, who's in our chapter here, escaped with the Silmaril, and now they're coming once again to try and get the Silmaril and they kill a bunch of these coastal elves. And by the end of it, yeah, there are only two left. One of them, as you said, is Maethros. He's the oldest one and actually has been a hero in some of our stories. He's the one who had his hand cut off when he was chained to the mountain and he was rescued by Fingon, his best buddy, the son of Fingolfin. And Maethros has led a bunch of fights against Morgoth. He had something called the Union of Maethros where he got a dream team together to try and fight Morgoth. That didn't go very well. But he's one of these two survivors, but he's still driven by this oath and has participated in all three of these kinslings. The other one who survives is named Maglor, who's a minstrel and singer. And we haven't heard much about him, but he's the <laughs> other of the seven who's makes it out. And they come down in their following and they wreck all these refugees. The reason this is the worst for me is just because it's like beating them when they're already down. These are like a people who are already have seen their kingdoms destroyed, and now you're attacking them. For me, this is where Maethros and the other Sons of Fane are really just, they're beyond redemption for me here. Yeah, at this point, they've moved on to the evil stage. <laughs> yes. I mean, I guess they feel like they have to justify everything that's happened. Like, if we just get one Silmaril, this will all have been worth it. Yeah, well, at this point, they even have conversations, right? Maethros and Maglor, they're like, are we really going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they debate it and they're like, we have a whole episode of our Quenya show about the importance of these oaths, right? And this one was real serious. And once it was taken, they feel obliged to see it to the end, come good or ill. But of course, they do all of this terrible kinslaying and they fail to get the Silmaril. Yeah, they do indeed. <laughs> and you said this was darker than you had, had thought before, but maybe you're thinking about this next positive we have. And so we've hit this sort of the valley and now we're, we're on the way up. Although this first thing will not make you think that. But so once uh, the sons of Feanor attack these refugees, as we're calling them, Elwing casts herself into the sea with the Silmaril clutched in her hands and so she goes down with the ship sort of yeah and like you said they can't grab the Silmaril so their quest was again in vain however Ulmo seeing her jump into the sea saves her and there's been a few times that I've been surprised 
kind of like an out of left field thing that happened here in the Silmarillion. Nothing will ever beat the uh, Sauron rap battle, but uh, <laughs> this one was pretty surprising to me here. So Ulmo then saves her from the sea and turns her into a bird so she can fly herself to Rindil on his ship somewhere out in the sea on the way to Valinor. So he just turns her into a, like a seagull or something and she flies away with the Silmaril in her grasp. And so here's our first quote of today's episode. On a time of night, Arindale, at the helm of his ship, saw her come towards him, as a white cloud exceeding swift beneath the moon, as a star over the sea moving in strange course, a pale flame on wings of storm. And it is sung that she fell from the air upon the timbers of Vingolet, Arindale's ship, in a swoon, nigh unto death, for the urgency of her speed. And Arindale took her to his bosom, but in the morning, with marveling eyes, he beheld his wife in her own form, beside him, and with her hair upon his face, and she slept. Yeah, what a save from Olmo. You didn't know they were going to turn her into a bird, really? <laughs> it takes a bit, a bit of a Greek myth kind of move here, I think. We haven't had a lot of shape-shifting action. No, we've not. Well, I guess we have, actually, but it's always from the gods and not from an elf or a half-elf. Yeah, that's true. And I think this miraculous rescue of Olmo, we talked about how now the Sons of Feanor are beyond the pale bad guys, but this is a moment for me when Olmo just jumps up in the pantheon of the Valar for me in terms of an MVP, right? Like, Olmo has been probably our most cited Valar ever since the first few chapters after the exile of the Noldor. He's the one member of the Arda Corporation who hasn't given up on the elves and men. This is the Lord of the Waters. He's up in all the streams and rivers. He's implanting visions in people's dreams. He's sending word to Turgon about, please leave Gondolin, you're in trouble. And Turgon doesn't listen to him, but Olmo did his darndest. And now Olmo is taking even a more aggressive stance in the wars of Middle Earth. He's saying, I can't let Elwing throw herself into the sea with this Somaril. Like, this can't be the end. And so he is a god. So he's got swan shifting powers, apparently. (laughs) And he lifts her out of the sea and she's able to fly to a Rendil who's out there basically by himself with a couple of other dudes just sailing around and lands on the ship with him as Arendil was speeding home. So Elwing and Arendil are now together. Of course, there's not a lot to go back to because everybody got killed on the shore and their children were captured by Maethros and Maglor, the sons of Feanor. Yeah, exactly. So Elrond and Elros have been captured by them. And many, including Elwing and Arendil, assumed that they were dead. But it turns out that their sons maybe do have a little bit of a heart because they pitied the boys and treated them pretty well. So I guess we can say they're mostly complicated people. Yeah, well, it's like all their evil comes from that oath. So when they think the Somro fell into the sea, they don't have any reasons to be jerks anymore. (laughs) Yeah. And they have done a lot of good things, right? So they do raise... Elros and Elrond for a time, which is interesting if you think about Elrond, the character, right? That for a time he was raised by the sons of Feanor. 
it's a complicated world. People say that Tolkien, he only has good and evil characters, but the Sons of Feanor are kind of in that mix, right? They join, you know, Gollum and, and Saruman. And, you know, there's more nuance there than you might think. I'm still going with bad, but I'm really glad they don't kill Elros and Elrond. <laughs> yeah, that would change the rest of the history of Middle-earth here. Yeah, for sure. But as you alluded to, Arindil has kind of lost all hope with Middle-earth. And so here is a uh, longer quote. And just as a heads up, some of these quotes in this chapter are some of the longest that we've had throughout the entire podcast. But it's the last chapter. Yeah. <laughs> It's the last game of the season. You can't hold anything back now, Raleigh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is when all our trick plays we've been practicing are coming <laughs> out. <laughs> Arindale saw no hope left in the lands of Middle-earth, and he turned again in despair and came not home, but sought back once more to Valinor, with Elwing at his side. He stood now most often at the prow of Vingolet, and the Silmaril was bound upon his brow and ever its light grew greater as they drew into the west. And the wise have said that it was by reason of the power of that holy jewel that they came in time to waters that no vessels save those of the Teleri had known. And they came to the enchanted isles and escaped their enchantment. And they came into the shadowy seas and passed their shadows. And they looked upon Tol Aresia, the lonely isle, but tarried not. And at the last, they cast anchor in the Bay of Eldamar. And the Teleri saw the coming of that ship out of the east, and they were amazed, gazing from afar upon the light of the Silmaril. And it was very great. Then Arendil, first of living men, landed on the immortal shores. And Arendil said, Here none but myself shall set foot, lest you fall under the wrath of the Valar. But that peril I will take on myself alone for the sake of the two kindreds. So Arendil manages to find the way to Valinor with Elwing at his side and the Silmaril with them as well. And some combination of those three managed to get through where everyone else has failed to get back to Valinor. There has been no ship that went from Valinor to Middle-earth or Middle-earth to Valinor since the exile of the Noldor for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is a big, big deal. What a journey that must have been, right? Like a coming to the new world kind of feel even. Like, what is this place that I've found? And the people there are like, whoa, who are you? And how did you get here? <laughs> yeah. And Arendel takes up this task, right? People have been trying to get here for a very long time to say, Valar, Morgoth is swamping us really bad. Can you help? And nobody succeeded. And the Valar haven't sent any help. And Arendil is going to take that weight on his shoulders. Elwing does go with him. His wife says, I'm not going to like just stay on the ship. I'm going too. And between them, they head into Valinor with Arendil going ahead. And I think it's notable that when he gets there, all of the elves, as they usually are in Valinor, are at a festival 
(laughs) with the gods. So nobody's around to greet them. (laughs) And so for a while, Arendel is just kind of wandering around Valinor being like, you know, I picture him like knocking on doors and like, hello, like anybody here? I have the Silmaril. So he does that for a time. The first person he does actually encounter is named Aeon Way. And Aeon Way is the banner bearer of Manway, the CEO of the Arda Corporation. And Aeon Way is also called the Herald of Manway. So he's the one who delivers Manway's pronouncements. Um, So like the chief of staff and like the White House. Yes, I think that's right. He's the chief of staff to the CEO of the Arda Corporation. And what I love about it is that when AOA sees Arendil, he immediately knows who Arendil is, and he really proves himself as a true herald, because this is what AOA says when he sees Arendil. Hail, Arendil, of mariners most renowned, the looked-for that cometh at unawares, the longed-for that cometh beyond hope. Hail, Arendil, bearer of light before the sun and moon, splendor of the children of earth, star in the darkness, jewel in the sunset, radiant in the morning. Like, what a hype man. Like, I'd (laughs) I'd pick that guy for my herald, no problem. That's basically the only thing he ever says. So I just assume he talks like that all the time. You're just uh, just announcing whenever someone makes a new jewel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Aonway greets Arendil. He gives him all these names. And then Aonway takes Arendil before the council of the Valar, the whole corporation. Maybe they're upset because they have to leave their feast for a meeting. But they uh, come to hear what Arendil has to say. Yeah, so Rindel has entered Valinor and goes to the Council of the Valor, and he delivers his request. And so the Valor took counsel together, and they summoned Ulmo from the deeps of the sea, and Rindel stood before their faces and delivered the errand of the two kindreds. Pardon, he asked for the Noldor, and pity for their great sorrows, and mercy upon men and elves and succour in their need. And his prayer was granted. And so after hundreds of years of the Valor just not doing anything, Arendil is the one to actually uh, break their grumpy stubbornness. And so it is a little curious why he is the one. So I guess I'll throw my theory to you and then I want to hear what you say. Yeah, sure. I think that's a fair point, right? They've been so reticent to help out against Morgoth for ever, basically, since they exiled the Noldor. Why does Arendil get through? I think that's like an open question, so I'm curious what you think. So, since he's a half-elf here, he's the union of the two races. So, I think that it could have been Dior as well, as somebody who could have done this. But since he was killed, and we'll just never know what would have happened there. But as this union of elves and men, he has a special power as the child of both children of Iluvatar. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. And not only does he bring the two kindreds together, which again, we've talked about many times, doesn't happen very often. (laughs) But yeah, I promise this is one of the last times we'll harp on the ancestry. But just think about the people in his bloodline, including people that these Valar knew 
right? So we've got Arendil on his elven side. He's of the house of Finway, and he comes from the line of Fingolfin, the line of Turgon, king of Gondolin, and through Turgon's daughter Idril. And it does say that like the light of the Eldar shines in his face, right? So when the Valar see him, this is my reading, right? This isn't in the text, but they can see those people, right? And notably, he's not of the line of Feanor, which might tick them off, but everybody really liked Fingolfin and Turgon and Finway. <laughs> so that maybe plays a side part. That's just speculation. But also of the houses of men, and we've said this before, but Erendil comes from the mixed blood of the three houses of the elf friends, the house of Bayor, the house of Hador, and my main girl, Halith, her house as well. <laughs> so talk about just putting all of your cards on the table, all of your good guy genes into one person. And then Elwing, who is not before the council, but nearby, she has a similar legacy, right? With Baron and Luthien and Melian and Thingol, all of that. So these are, if you have to send somebody to represent the good guys of Middle-earth, this is your best team, right? I think it's also important that they brought the Silmaril with them. <laughs> and they didn't really intend to do that. It kind of just worked out that way, right? Because Elwing jumped in the water and Olmo birded her over to Arendel in the ship. But that's also probably why they got through the secret passage back across the Sea of Valnors because of the Silmaril. Right, right. And this Silmaril started the whole thing. Remember, the Silmaril contains the light of the two trees of Valinor that have been destroyed by Morgoth and Ungoliant. So that light of the trees, which was the greatest creation the Valar ever going to make was those trees, is in this Silmaril. And Arendel can say, like, here it is. And they can look at it and remember that time of peace before the exile and the kinslaying and all this chaos. So what a offering to bring with you as well. Almost so like Feanor made the terrible decision to withhold the Silmarils after the trees were destroyed, but here I am with the Silmaril asking for help. I wish we got like what Arendil said. <laughs> you know what I mean? We only get this context, and so we have to kind of speculate about these kind of things. Yeah, I guess he is the greatest thing ever created on Middle Earth, or a combination of the greatest things ever created on Earth, and then comes with the greatest thing created in Valinor. So maybe just the uh, the melding of everything that the children of Iluvatar have ever done. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's the light of the two trees, which are the greatest thing the Valar have ever done. The Silmaril, which is the greatest object the elves are ever going to make. And then in Arendil himself, the result of all the good genes in Middle-earth as well. So a trifecta there. Good point. There's one other piece of this puzzle that I think is important to note. You mentioned it as part of that quote you read, but another way to think about this is Morgoth's perspective. So I want to read you this quote about what Morgoth thinks now that he controls all of Middle-earth, all Balerion, basically. It says, So great had Morgoth's pride become that he deemed that none would ever again come to open war against him. Moreover, 
He thought that he had forever estranged the Noldor from the Lords of the West, and that content in their blissful realm, the Valar would heed no more his kingdom in the world without. For to him that is pitiless, the deeds of pity are ever strange and beyond reckoning. And you mentioned that in your quote as well, that pardon Arendel asked for the Noldor and pity for their great sorrows. And I think here where it's not Olmo coming to say, hey, everybody's in trouble. It's actually a person who has suffered as part of the world, who shows up before the Valar and says, help us. And it's that power of pity coming around once again. Nien or our HR Valar in Gandalf, I think, would be proud that finally the Valar say, we take pity on Middle Earth and we're going to do what has to be done at whatever cost. Because despite the foolishness of the Noldor in claiming the Silmarils in the Terrible Oath, the people of Middle Earth are deserving of our pity and our help. And that's the message that Arendil delivers, and it's what Morgoth could never understand. And so I think it's those three things, right? It's the messenger, it's the Silmaril that he brings, and it's the pity that the Valar are finally made to feel that come together and put them on a course to help after all of the strength that of elves and men have fallen trying to fight Morgoth by themselves, which never was going to work. <laughs> That's the other thing. We had so many chapters of battles against Morgoth when from very early the god said, you're not going to win. Morgoth is a god and you're trying to fight him. And it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the Valor had to learn a lesson as well for everybody to come together and be one big happy family. Yes. but. While the Valar are kicking themselves into gear, another important thing is what are they going to do with Arendil and Elwing? Because nobody was allowed to return to Valinor. They were exiled. So there's a very real consequence for coming back here that now the Valar have to decide. Right. And so this discussion in the council is brought up and Manway himself says, it is my decision because I set the course yeah, he's pulling rank a little bit as the CEO, I think. Like, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll make this decision. Yeah, exactly. But so when he does this, Manway charts a new course for elves and men in the future. In this matter, the power of doom is given to me, Manway said. The peril that he ventured for love of the two kindreds shall not fall upon Arendale, nor shall it fall upon Elwing, his wife, who entered into peril for love of him but they shall not walk again ever among elves or men in the Outer Lands. And this is my decree concerning them. To Arendil and to Elwing and to their sons shall be given leave each to choose freely to which kindred their fate shall be joined and under which kindred shall be judged. And so then Arendil and Elwing are then given this choice at this moment, which path they want to take. And so Elwing chooses to be judged as one of the firstborn children of Iluvatar, as an elf. And this is because of her lineage from Luthien. 
And for her sake, Arindil chooses the same, although he really wanted to be a man and be the people of his father. So like Luthien before him, he chose the path that would keep him with the one he loved. So Luthien chose to never be able to go to the Undying Lands. Arindil does the opposite and will now live forever to be without wing. Yeah, and I think that's a great comparison. And notably, this decision falls to Elrond and Elros as well. They basically get to decide, do you want to be an elf and live forever but be bound to the world? Or do you want to be a man and get the gift of Iluvatar to die and leave the world eventually? And this is the same decision that they make a heck of a lot of in the Lord of the Rings movies with Arwen, right? Arwen is the daughter of Elrond. And so this plays into her fate somewhat. And she has to decide, do I want to be an elf? Do I want to die eventually? And so it's another one that just comes up again and again. Do you choose love or do you choose the safe option or what you might do independently of the other person? I also think that Manway, as you said, does pull rank here, but I do respect that he sticks to his guns about leaving the decision up to Arendil and Elwing, right? He doesn't say you've got to do this. And he's been burned by that before. You remember when Feanor first declared the oath and said, we're going to leave Valinor, we're going to fight Morgoth. Manway and the Valar had to decide, should we just stop them? Like, that's really dumb. <laughs> they should not do that. They can't beat Morgoth. They're all going to die. It's going to be terrible. And they ended up deciding if we stop them forcibly, are we any better than Morgoth? They have to make their own choices. Here, Manway sticks to his guns. He says, you choose for you. And the same thing, of course, was given to Luthien, that choice between immortality or mortality. So good on Manway, I think, for establishing that policy early and sticking to it, that they're going to let the children of Iluvatar, who the Valar love, find their own path, and Arendil and Elwing together choose the elven path here. But if the carrot is you get to choose, thanks for bringing this message to us. Stick, you're not supposed to have come back to Valinor, so you can't go back to Middle-earth. Yeah, but Arendil sort of finds a loophole in that. He might not be going back to Middle-earth, but he could sail around the world. So he takes the Silmaril... Sticks it on his forehead and now becomes a shining beacon throughout the world. And so here we get a, uh, a description of his uh, future career, I guess you could say. Now fair and marvelous was that vessel made. And it was filled with a wavering flame, pure and bright. And Arindil the Mariner sat at the helm, glistening with dust of elven gems. And the Silmaril was bound upon his brow. Far he journeyed in that ship, even into the starless voids. But most often was he seen at morning or at evening, glimmering in sunrise or sunset, as he came back to Valinor from voyages beyond the confines of the world. And so, on his voyages, he goes into what are called the Seas of Heaven. And with the Silmaril blazing on the ship, the people of Middle-earth can see it in the sky. 
and they call it Gil Estelle, the Star of High Hope. And even the sons of Feanor recognize the glory of the light. Yeah, it gets really cosmic here again. Yeah. <laughs> the Valar take a Rendell and a ship and put it up in the sky. So not only is he sailing the seas, but he is put into the heavens and can sail this ship around with the Silmar upon his brow. And this appears as a star to the people of Middle Earth. And it's another sort of like sun and moon rising moment where everyone can see the brightest star in the sky all of a sudden. And the people in the know, including the Sons of Fane, are like, is that a Silmaril? <laughs> like, they, <laughs> like the last they saw that fell into the sea with Elwing, but they know it's the Silmaril. But it gives hope against Morgoth, right? That people are like, that star still shines. The Silmaril is untouched by the evil. And that basically becomes Arendil's job forever, star driver. And so that Silmaril remains in the heavens. And Elwing stays in Valinor. And Arendil, when he sails close by, she turns into a bird again and they go hang out in the sky for a time. <laughs> And that's the sort of mythological ending of that love story, the Arendel and Elwing, is that he becomes the sky mariner forever with the Silmaril, bringing light to Middle-earth and Valinor. And Elwing gets to be with him from time to time and also just be in the blessed realm. And notably, this star is around forever, including in The Lord of the Rings. And there's even a moment where... Sam and Frodo in the darkness of Middle-earth look up and they see this star. I have a quote about this. Peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. So this is the same star. Sam and Frodo are at their lowest point. They are beat up in Mordor. They don't have water. They don't have food. The ring is tearing Frodo apart. And Sam looks up and through the cloud cover of Mordor, he sees Arendil's star. And this is part of what helps them get through, right? This is the hope that they needed. And I think this is just one illustration of what this star means for all of the elves and the good people of Middle-earth. And that's a rendel, right? It's wild to like think about that. It's not a star. It's the Silmaril, the light of the two trees shining down on Sam and Frodo and Mordor there. Yeah, that's interesting. I know there's an extended scene where we get that in the movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And those lines are delivered very similarly, I think, by the Sam of the movies. There's light up there that no shadow can touch. Now, we're about to turn the corner between the Voyage of Arendil and the War of Wrath parts of this chapter. But before we do, Raleigh, I would love if you would bear with me as I dig into today's key passage. And we were talking about the last game of the season, don't hold anything back. This quote is awesome, but it's 
very in the weeds and quite elaborate. So you'll have to stick with me. And sorry for anybody listening out there who's about to get a whole dose of Lord of the Rings Silmarillion connection. But I'm very excited about it. I've been waiting for us to get to a Rendil for a long time. <laughs> Good. So not to build up anymore. But yeah, like if the joy partially of reading Tolkien is this onion of layers of meaning and depth and history and everything, then like this is the juiciest and most multi-layered onion that we've encountered so far. And it does make it into the movies as well. So I'm hoping that you can make this connection with us. So the first thing I want to do is read a quote about the file of Galadriel which is the light that Galadriel gives to Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring that then Frodo uses in the darkness of Shelob's lair to shine a light and save them. And you, ring bearer, Galadriel said, turning to Frodo, I come to you last, who are not last in my thoughts. For you I have prepared this. She held up a small crystal file, It glittered as she moved it, and rays of white light sprang from her hand. In this file, she said, is caught the light of Arendil's star, set amid the waters of my fountain. It will shine brighter when night is about you. May it be a light for you in dark places when all other lights go out. So here we learn that that magical flashlight (laughs) that Frodo and Sam have in Shelob's lair itself contains the light of Arendil's star. And that star is the Silmaril, which contains the light of the two trees of Valinor. So this object has some real history to it, right? It's almost as if Galadriel has remade a Silmaril in a way because it's the same light and blended it with her own power and now has given it to Frodo for his quest. So what a gift. Yeah. yeah. How did she make it? It's not known. It does say here in this quote, she combined it with the waters of her fountains. Remember Galadriel has that magic mirror fountain that shows visions and stuff. And Galadriel, as we've learned from the Silmarillion, is a very old and venerable and powerful elf. She was there in Valinor when the Silmarils were there, when the trees were growing. Then she went to exile and remained in Middle-earth up to the Lord of the Rings. And then at the end, she finally sails back to Valinor. So if anybody could pull it off, it would be her. But it is a next level move to get that light from the star. I picture it shining into her basin, right? Her fountain. And then they're capturing that light and water together like that. Okay. That's speculation how it was made. She just hands it to him and that's what she says. But that's <laughs> that's my that's how I would do it. What's interesting here is once we know what this file is, let's think about where it comes up in the Lord of the Rings story. Frodo and Sam are being led by Gollum through the mountain into Mordor. Gollum is tricking them. He's taking them right to this giant spider, Shalob, the spawn of Ungoliant. And we talked about in our chapter about Ungoliant when we first met her, how Ungoliant is this evil Maiar spirit or otherworldly spirit of darkness who sucked the two trees dry and then became so powerful that even she ensnared Morgoth for a time. Mm-hmm. And 
Shelob is her most notable child of Ungolian. So not just a big spider, but a big spider demon that lives forever, basically. One of the Maiar is Shelob of the level of the other Maiar, like the Balrogs, like Gandalf and the wizards, etc. And so they're in the lair. It's all looking bad. Shelob's going to come get them. And Frodo remembers finally that he has this file in his pocket and he pulls it out. And so what's interesting is that here Frodo is holding up the light of the Silmaril in the file and the light of the two trees of Valinor. And he's facing off essentially against the creature that destroyed those very trees. Right. The spawn of the creature destroyed those trees versus the trees, the rematch. And we talked a little bit about this in the Angolian episode. Now we're going to take it to the next level. A little bit. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Let's turn it to 11. So here's the quote about Frodo taking this light out. Slowly, Frodo's hand went to his bosom, and slowly he held aloft the file of Galadriel. For a moment it glimmered, faint as a rising star struggling in heavy earthward mists. And then, as its power waxed and hope grew in Frodo's mind, it began to burn and kindled to a silver flame, a minute heart of dazzling light, as though Arendil had himself come down from the high sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it until it seemed to shine in the center of a globe of airy crystal, and the hand that held it sparkled with white fire. Aya Arendil Elenian Ankalima, Frodo cried and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his clear and untroubled. And other than that, just being really awesome. Thank you, Tolkien. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about what Frodo says there, which is in Elvish. Aya Arendil Elenian on Kalima. It's four words. And it means in the Elvish language, hail Arendil, brightest of stars. And so now we know not only like it makes sense for him to be calling to Arendil because this is the light of the Silmaril that Arendil bears in the heavens. Well, first, notably, Frodo says that in the movies, too, which I love. It's a really nice touch. He stands up after Frodo falls down a bunch of times. <laughs> yeah. layer. He gets the light going and he stands up and he says that and he turns the light on. Aya, Arenda, Lenin, Kalima, and the light comes up and he just manages to stop Shelob from murdering him like right off the bat. That phrase, though, the hail Arendil, brightest of stars, a couple of points about it. One it's interesting how Arendil and Frodo have this similar history. And we talked about this at the end of last episode. The war doesn't work for the good guys. Like fighting wars against the evil forces doesn't work. It's all about these single underappreciated figures who really make the difference in the world, right? That's a central thing for Tolkien. And so both Arendil and Frodo have to find the way 
when everybody else has failed, where the strength of arms was unavailing. So it's nice that Frodo would call upon that here as he's trying to find the impossible path into Mordor, just like Arendil found the impossible way back to Valinor. Now we need to talk about Tolkien's writing history. This idea of Arendil and this line, Aya Arendil Elenian Ankalima, is a translation in Tolkien's Elvish language of a real line that's in an old English poem that Tolkien as a young man studied, right? Tolkien was this scholar of languages. He loved old English. And he read this poem um, as a young man called Christ from the 8th century by this guy named Kunewulf. So picture Tolkien just like in the library or whatever. He's reading through old English poems and he comes across this line. Ela arendil engla bjortast ofer midinyard monum sendid, which is the old English line. And that translates to hail arendil, brightest of angels, sent unto men over Middle Earth. Oh, that's actually in the poem. Yeah. Middinyard, monum sendid, sent to men over Middinyard, Middle Earth. And so Tolkien looked at this poem, he thought, who is Arendil? And what is Middle Earth? And this was in. I think it was in like 1914. So three years before he wrote down the fall of Gondolin, the first thing he wrote down in his legendarium. In a way, this line, the Aya Arendil Elenian and Kalima, the old English translation of that is the beginning of Middle Earth. And it begins with Arendil and Tolkien's thinking, why is this person sent to men over Middle Earth? this brightest star. And so here in this line is the beginning of everything for Tolkien in a way, right? Like when he was like, I don't know, 21 or 22 or something like this. And he's translating this poem. It's like this little nugget, four words, right? Aya Arendil Lenin Kalima is his translation of this very short line of old English that just carried from there to Peter Jackson's billion dollar movie franchise, right? And everything in between. And the fact that not only does that almost microcosm origin story make it into the book and make it into the movie, which is great, but it has all the significance with Frodo and Arendil, Shelob, Ungoliant, the two trees versus darkness itself all coming together right at that little moment is just like fabulously complicated and subtle. And for me, like one of the best examples of how reading the Silmarillion, our year long almost now quest to do this can pay off, right? That that's meaning that you'd never would find without really thinking about the whole picture. And so that was my moment I've been waiting for. Thank you for staying with me, Raleigh, through it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if there is, if the entire world goes down to one line like that, I mean, season two of Quinya Questions in Quarantine is just that poem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's about five lines long. The old English poem creased. At least now, next time, 
you come across that part of the story or about the file of Galadriel or about the stars, we'll just have all of this Silmarillion history to be bringing into that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to say this has come full circle is uh, really underselling it. I feel the same way. And speaking of coming full circle, so we've still got to put a bow tie on the Silmarillion here. And we know we've now finished a Rendil's piece for the most part. He's going to have a little cameo in the second half. But now we get into the War of Wrath. Yeah, so I'll be honest, when I was reading this, once the uh, the War of Wrath came, I felt like it was already over. It seemed like once the Valor were getting involved, it's only a matter of time. And so we get a kind of a blitzkrieg operation from them here, where they come in <laughs> and uh, really sweep in. And so we have the star in the sky now. All of Middle-earth sees this and... As you said before, they feel hope that something is going to happen now. And so finally, 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 after 500 plus years, the Valor are making their moves. And so they send all the elves that are still in Valinor to attack Morgoth. For the first time since like chapter two, we get to hear from the Vanyar. They're coming. And then the Noldor, who didn't go... So I guess that's like Fenarfin. Is that the right name? Yeah, Fenarfin, the wise brother of Feanor and Fingolfin, who was wise enough to not get himself exiled. He now gets to show up with the dream squad of all dream squads that has the rest of the Noldor and Valinor. Yeah, the Hermiones, the Vanyar, who we said were super nerdy and just hung out with the gods forever. They finally did something. They're coming to war finally and the Valar themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So we're thinking Orome, the Huntsman. We're thinking of Tolkos, event security Valar. Everybody's coming in. And the Teleri, who again have a mixed feelings because they were kinslayed by the Noldor real hard. That was the first kinslaying. But the Teleri ferry everybody to Middle Earth in their ships. So they participate, just don't actually like fight on the other side. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, I guess I thought they were just still chilling in Valinor, but that makes way more sense. They've got those ships, right? If the Teleri have anything, it's beautiful ships. And so they get the Vanyar and the rest of the Noldor to Middle-earth. Morgoth may have Middle-earth, but he is not ready for the thunderstorm of gods and high elves that is landing at this point. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really the best of the entire world coming at Morgoth right now. And so we finally get our major, major battle here. And so the Valor sweep over Morgoth's forces, overwhelming them from every direction. And so Morgoth now realizes that everything's looking bleak for him. So he pulls out his last final piece. He's got like that hidden like X factor that no one knows exists. And it's a bunch of dragons. And so these dragons are no Glaurung, but they're the spawn of Glaurung. And they are numerous and probably just as fearsome as he was. And so at first the dragons decimate the elves and the men as they've done so many times in the past hundreds of years. But then we get the ride of the Valkyries moment, as I thought as I was reading it. Over the, the hills, out of the sun, 
here comes our new superhero, Arindil. And who does he have with him? He has the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ride of the Valkyrie. Yeah, and it's Arindil in his flying ship, Vingalot, with the Silmaril upon his brow. And here comes Thorundor and all the Eagles. You know, if the good guys are going to win, you know the Eagles are getting in this mix. So now we've got an aerial battle of Arendil and the Eagles versus all the dragons while there's the battle on the ground of the elves and the Valar versus the orcs and the Balrogs. You know, this is everybody pulling out all the stops. Yeah, this is the uh, the Thanos battle that we've all been waiting for. And here's a description of that battle. And Arindil came, shining with white flame, and about his ship were gathered all the great birds of heaven, and Thorondor was their captain. And there was battle in the air all the day, and through a dark night of doubt. But before the rising sun, Arindil slew Ancalagon the Black, the mightiest of the dragon host, and cast him from the sky. And Ancalagon fell upon the towers of Angban, and they were broken in his ruin. Then the sun rose, and the host of the valor prevailed, and well nigh all the dragons were destroyed, and all the pits of Morgoth were broken and unroofed, and the might of the valor descended into the deeps of the earth. There Morgoth stood at last, at bay, and yet unvaliant. He fled into the deepest of his mines, and sued for peace and pardon, but his feet were hewn from under him, and he was hurled upon his face. Then he was bound with the chain Anganor, which he had worn aforetime. In his iron crown, they beat into a collar for his neck, and his head was bowed upon his knees. And the two Silmarils, which remained to Morgoth, were taken from his crown, and they shone unsullied beneath the sky. Yeah, the pity does not extend to Morgoth. They gave him a chance before to weasel his way out of this chaining, and he ended up destroying their trees, stealing the Silmarils, and causing all of this chaos of the whole Silmarillion. The Valar are not to be fooled so lightly again. Yeah, and I love that they took his crown and then made it into his like collar that they <laughs> chained him up with. <laughs> Yes, uh, this is reminiscent of remember the first time they did this where Tulkas wrestled Morgoth and threw him on his face and then they chained him up. A couple of thoughts. So one, at first, it appears frustrating about how easy this is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like the Valar could have done this at any point. That's how I first felt when I read it. It does take a little thinking, but do remember that part of the reason that the Valar don't want to do this is not just because they were ticked off at Feanor and the Noldor elves for their oath and the kinslaying, but also there are real repercussions when gods go to war in lands where people live. We've hinted for a long time that Beleriand, this western part of Middle-earth, doesn't survive until the time of the Lord of the Rings. This is the moment where Beleriand is destroyed. And here's a quote about that. So great was the fury of those adversaries that the northern regions of the western world were rent asunder, and the sea roared in through many chasms, and there was confusion and great noise, and rivers perished or found new paths. 
and the valleys were upheaved and the hills trod down. That basically means R.I.P. Beleriand. Yeah. <laughs> you might miss it if you're caught up in the battle and the Rendil and the Silmarils and everything, but much of the world during this time, it doesn't happen all in one day, but the world is reformed in this battle between the gods and Morgoth and all the elves and all the orcs and the Balrogs and the dragons. Like, just the land itself is changed because of this clash. And that's part of the reason the Valar didn't want to do this, because they fought Morgoth before and they remember that it wrecked all of the world. And so they were hesitant to do it. But finally, it was like, we have to make our move or it's just Morgoth's world forever. Despite their triumph, despite getting the Silmarils back and, yeah, really putting Morgoth on his butt again, there are repercussions. This whole part of the western part of Middle-earth is underwater (laughs) soon after. Over the next period of years, it slowly just becomes a totally different place and unrecognizable. And that's why it looks different by the time we get to the Third Age in The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I gotcha. I mean, full disclosure, I totally missed that when reading before. So... Yeah, it's a key piece to keep in mind because I remember trying to look at maps of Middle Earth from the Third Age and be like, okay, but like, where was Doriath and where was Angband and where was Nargothrond? The answer to all of those questions is underwater. (laughs) (laughs) And it just underlines how big a deal this battle was, right? Yeah, well, I guess this is the World War One, just ruining of uh, the French countryside that Tolkien was fighting in, so... Yeah, I think that those sort of memories obviously stayed with Tolkien forever and they come up at different ways to different levels in his different stories. But he's somebody who really tried to keep the stakes real. You know, war has costs, even if it's victorious on the good side, people die and those who survive are changed forever, including the land in this case. But so there we have it. Morgoth has been defeated. However, there are two Silmarils still out there. And man, oh man, are these sons of Fanor thirsty for him. (laughs) The cojones on these guys is phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, you have to respect their tenacity, even if you hate the outcomes of their efforts to get these things. And so, yeah, so they asked the Valar. If they can have them after they take them from Morgoth. <laughs> and as you might imagine, this was a, a big no. And so the Valor tell them that they are to return to Valinor and face judgment. But like the little toddlers that they have really become at this point, they don't listen. They sneak into the camp where they're being held, kill the guards. And then at long last, they grab the Silmarils and finally possess them. Yes, which they haven't notably... Despite all of their efforts to get their hands on these Silmarils, it was the whole purpose for the Noldor coming back to Middle-earth. They've never touched one. So Maethros and Maglor, the two remaining sons of Feanor, after 500 years plus, get the jewels that they've been trying to get back. Indeed. But it doesn't end up well. But the jewel burned the hand of Maethros in pain unbearable, and he perceived that it was as Aeonwe had said, and that his right thereto had become void, and that the oath was vain. 
And being in anguish and despair, he cast himself into a gaping chasm filled with fire, and so ended. And the Silmaril that he bore was taken into the bosom of the earth. And it is told of Maglor that he could not endure the pain with which the Silmaril tormented him, and he cast it at last into the sea. And thereafter he wandered ever upon the shores, singing in pain and regret beside the waves. For Maglor was mighty among the singers of old, but he came never back among the people of the elves. And thus it came to pass that the Silmarils found their long homes, one in the airs of heaven, and one in the fires of the heart of the world, and one in the deep waters. Yeah, a tragic but fitting end for both the Silmarils and the Sons of Feanor. My first observation about that is you would have thought that Aonwe, this herald of Manway who was guarding the Silmarils, would have done a better job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, did anybody tell you that these Sons of Feanor are still out there? Because this is all they do. Like, <laughs> come on. Like, of course they're going to come try and take these Silmarils when you say they can't have them. Poor management on Anway's part and the victorious elves to not keep better guard of these things. And can you imagine the emotions of Maithros, who remembers the oldest of these sons. He's seen almost all of his brothers die trying to get these things. He's followed his father into exile and his father died trying to get these things. He hasn't gotten one forever. He's done all these terrible things. He finally gets a Silmaril and it destroys him. So he's Gollum. A little bit. And he casts himself into the earth with the Silmaril. I think that's a fair comparison, right? Like he finally got his drug. If the ring is Gollum's drug, then the Silmaril is Maithros and the other son's drug. And he gets it and it's too much. The burning of the Silmaril in his hand does show you have forfeited your right to this creation, the best creation of the elves, holding the light of the best creation of the Valar. Your oath has corrupted your claim to this thing. And so he jumps in the earth. Maglor chucks his out into the sea and wanders off forever. Maglor, the only one of the sons of Feanor who survives this whole thing. And uh, there we have it. One up high with Arendil that people can look on every day. And the other two are never found again. It's fitting, but also just so sad. None of them, for instance, get back to Valinor except for the one in the sky with Arendil passing over it. And the sons fulfilled their oath, but in doing so lost their claim to the object that prompted that oath. So despite my judgment of them earlier, I feel for them. I'm curious for you, Raleigh, thinking about where these three Silmarils ended up, does it feel like one Silmaril gained in terms of the one that Arendil has? Or does it feel like two Silmarils lost to the world in the ocean and in the earth? I guess it kind of feels like they're lost. Like they've been corrupted by this whole uh, experience. Where originally you had the light of the trees as the source of the Silmarils. And so the most beautiful things in the world. And now they're... They're just gone. Just like the trees before them, they're gone. 
so while there is the one in the air that is the guiding hope for for all the people of Middle Earth, with everything that was lost before, it doesn't seem like things have been gained for the people of Middle Earth. Yeah, I think that's true. We talked about this theme with Tolkien, right? That the world contains great wonder and beauty, but that nothing lasts forever. And I think here we have another example of that. We've lost those two Silmarils. And the third one we can still see up in the sky, but it's not accessible in the same way. And it will never be as wonderful as the three Silmarils together or of the two trees before that. It's all fallen from a point of perfection. And we can only get the refraction of that perfection through these different layers. And with the loss of the Silmarils here into the earth and water, it's just more of that same experience. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the the fact that there is the one in the sky as kind of just like a remembrance of things that maybe we shouldn't have done in the past, but now we can we can look to that and make the future better. Yeah, I think that it's a silver lining in a big way. And the fact that no individual really keeps the jewel, right? Arendel's up there with it, but the light of it shines over everybody is symbolic and hopeful in a way that all of this like murder and warfare brings us down in the dirt and that keeps things elevated and hopeful. And the fact that we know that it lasts through the Lord of the Rings time lends to that mm-hmm. feeling as well. That's all a, a positive feeling as we come to the end of our Silmarillion proper and the tale of these three wondrous gems, our MacGuffins <laughs> that drove our story for so long. I guess as we sign off today, I'd say we're done with the Silmarillion, but our listeners, you're not done with us yet. There's still some more in our published book and there are still some big unanswered questions that we're going to get to before our tale is through. For instance, why have we never heard about Elros before Elrond's brother? What the heck happened to him? We know so much about Elrond. We're going to find some more about that next time. Another big question that might have struck some folks' minds, when the heck do the wizards show up in this story? Where's old Gandalf walking around? He hasn't showed up yet, which is surprising, I think, for first-time readers. These are questions that are answered in the remaining two sections of the book, one about the island of Numenor and the other about the rings of power. Thank you for sticking with us thus far. We've completed now the rise and fall of the entire land of Beleriand involving these three Silmarils. Here in regular Earth, meanwhile, quarantine continues. Raleigh and I will be working for you here. And I think that this theme of there is darkness in the world and we'll never get rid of it. But amid the darkness, there is light. These are really foundational things to Tolkien and something we've seen in this chapter and in the Silmarillion story. And to sign us off today, I just have one more quote. This is from the Lord of the Rings about this state of the world. And I think this applies equally to Middle Earth as to our 
current worldwide pandemic quarantine situation. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair. And though in all lands, love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Stay safe, stay well. Raleigh and I will talk to you soon. <laughs>